Okay, I'm taking the reins for this one. We are at Fort McHenry, and I made Steve Perot take me along his side, whether he, whether he liked it or not. And he is a Vietnam veteran, and his story is crazy. First, Steve, list your list your job titles when you were overseas. My job titles. Well, I was a Vietnamese linguist. Yep. I went to language school, learned Vietnamese. Um, I was a translator, interpreter, voice intercept operator, cryptographer, um, interrogator, and I did some special ops things. That's crazy. And how did, because you learned Vietnamese, how, how did you learn that? Okay, the Defense Department has what they call the Defense the Defense Language Institute. It's in Monterey, California. It, at the time, was the best language school in the world. I did 47 weeks of the North Vietnamese dialect of Vietnamese, um, five over, or six hours a day, five days a week, and I ran for 47 weeks. That's crazy. And you did um, you did some interrogating. From what I, I normally it's Joel or me interrogating, but you did some interrogating while you were in Vietnam, right? Yes, I did. Um, we we were dealing with communication, so anytime we captured somebody we thought had communications information, they would have me go out and, and uh, interrogate them. And what did you do? How'd you learn it? Well, how did <laughs> what was I... your best tactic? <laughs> <laughs> how I learned it was kind of on the on the job training, but the um, a friend, one of the other people had showed me a trick. He said, use cigarettes, and before you get all scared on me... I know, right away my reaction was, oh, it was cigarette burns, <laughs> but no. No. We use uh, Salem cigarettes, the menthol Salems, and these guys, every one of them smoked. And mm-hmm. they smoked those terrible... But chi- not you. No, not me. I didn't <laughs> smoke. They, uh, they smoked the Chinese, the terrible Chinese and uh, Cambodian cigarettes. They were... Ooh. Anyhow, <laughs> um, I would do an interrogation. Normally, these guys, they smoke. They, they'd been captured by the time I talked to them. They'd been a prisoner for 12 to 72 hours. And I would, when I got to them... I'd sit down and start talking to him, and I'd bring out a pack of cigarettes. I'd make sure the pack was open. I'd make sure there was a book of matches with it. And I'd put it on the table and ignore it and start talking to the prisoner, asking him questions, what his name was, what his birthday was, what his father did, where he grew up, where he went to school. And I talked to him just to get used me get used to his dialect and him get used to my accent. And then we'd... Um, about the time I got to where he joined the army, I'd stop and interrupt myself and say, please excuse me, I'm so sorry. Would you like a cigarette? <laughs> you were the, playing a tricky game. <laughs> it was, it worked so, and I gave, I'd give, you know, give the guy the cigarette, and as he's smoking it, we'd start talking about how he joined the army and, and where he went with the army and everything. And about the time I got him up to where he was, I tried to time it, so he finished the cigarette, and I got to what he'd been doing two or three weeks before he was captured. And at that point, I'd offer him a second cigarette. And the guy would take the second cigarette, and it was it was magical. You'd, he'd light up the second cigarette, take a puff out of it, and the only way I can describe it, it looked like his face was melting. He just <laughs> the, the total relaxation. He was just zoned on it. Mm-hmm. And by then, he'd been talking to me for 15, 20 minutes, and he just kept right on going. Anything I wanted to know, I, all I had to do was figure out what questions to ask. Yeah, that's smart. And you said, did you mention code breaking? We did. The Vietnamese used a um, 
Uh, you've ever seen the, the Sudoku puzzles? Yeah. Okay. It's a, they use a 10 by 10 matrix. Okay. And they put their alphabet on it and the numbers up and down the side. Okay. And the numbers are all the same. So like A was always 1-1. One, one. Okay. Then they'd, they'd write out their message and then they'd take um, a code of... How do I? They do it two ways. If they were using four-digit groups, there's four four digits to each. So they just they juggle the numbers around on the edge of the of the matrix. If they were using their high-level codes, they used a, uh, a computer-generated five-digit code, and they would take and add the five-digit number to the number they got when they used the matrix, and then that was that's what they would transmit. They transmit that code over the over the radio, yep. and that's what we were intercepting and copying. Now it was easy to break the four-digit codes, but when they went to the five-digit codes, you needed the code books. Yeah. How long did it take to? I mean, to break one code, I feel like it would take you so long. Well, they usually used the same code. Okay. For for a week or so, and it was fairly easy to break the code if you had the entire message. Okay. They always started it with the same message. Mm-hmm. It was Dong Chi Kalbang, greetings comrade, and they would so you knew what the first few groups were, yep. and then once you had those letters figured out, it, you know, it helped, and in the end was, was I forget what the, code, what the, the phrase they ended it with was, but you could, you could get quite a bit of the code that way. You still speak some Vietnamese? Yes. I hear that. You ever speak it? Uh, at the restaurant. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. The, that's the, great. The, at, at, or at the restaurant, the, um, the hotel we're staying at here yep. in town, yeah. one of the waiters is North Vietnamese. Oh. He came here in 1980 to escape Vietnam, and I was talking to him. Wow. Uh, What's maybe, I don't know if I should say it as your best memory but what's a memory that you want to share from your time in Vietnam uh, other than everything you just listed <laughs> I mean you were there for two years yeah, well, I was there for two years yep. it was uh, how do I phrase this there were times that were were fantastic very enjoyable really and there were other times that were absolutely frightening and terrifying you really only hear about the bad stuff. Yeah, usually. usually that's, Which, yeah. That's a lot. But, but yeah, I, I got along with the people well. I liked the people. I enjoy, I enjoyed the country. Uh, I did not enjoy what the communists did to it. And what, it, it terrified me what they did to their own people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you the bad memory. Okay. Okay. In um, April of 1969, I was at a place called Phu Bai in northern South Vietnam, about less than five miles from the city of Hue, which was the ancient capital of, of Vietnam. Uh, during Tet of 1968, which was a year before this, um, the communists overrun the city. They held it for almost a month. And during that time, they would send squads out through the city literally with clipboards and lists of people they were looking for and somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 people disappeared in, I can't even imagine in the spring of 69 it was April of 69 I was 
going to pick up my mail. And I got flagged down by somebody from the headquarters building, and they said, the sergeant major wants to talk to you now. So I go in, and he says, grab your gear and get back here. And by that, he meant, go get your weapon. Make <laughs> got back. They gave, he gave me extra ammunition, and we got in a jeep. Um, it was the colonel who was commanding the unit, the sergeant major, and we had a driver. And we went to the gate on the way out of the compound, and we picked up uh, two jeeps with loaded with MPs, and they had um, M60 machine guns mounted on pedestals on the jeeps. We, yeah, we were going out. Um, we drove down the road towards the beach. And that way, there's, it should be a resort. There's beautiful white sand beaches there. But we came down the beach and we could see a bunch of activity. And we pulled up there. And on the way there, the sergeant major is telling me, when we get there, you're going to translate for the colonel. And so just hang with us and <laughs> translate as we go. We got there and we were met by a uh, Vietnamese major who spoke very good English. So the plan changed. The uh, sergeant major grabbed a couple of the MPs, told them to watch my back, and told me to walk down the beach and find out what was going on and get as much information as I could. And right about that time, the wind shifted. We got the most ungodly smell. It was a mass grave. We figured there was somewhere around 500 bodies in it. And as I'm walking along, the MPs are following me, and I'm talking to the soldiers who were there and the civilians, and I remember coming up over a kind of a sand dune, and in front of us, there was a, this grave they were excavating, and everybody's wearing masks over their faces, just handkerchiefs over their faces. And on top of one of these sand hills is this old woman. And she is wailing and crying and complaining. And I'm listening to her, and at first I didn't believe what I was hearing. She's going on, she's talking about a shirt she had made. And I was kind of mad at her. Because I said, with all that's going on here, you're talking about some stupid shirt. And then it struck me. The body they were taking out of the grave was wearing that shirt. It was her son. This is you know, what the communists did to the, you know, they were Vietnamese, they did to their own people. Mm -hmm. It was just... Yeah. Yeah, well, I can't even imagine that. And I, did, I was not anticipating the conversation to go there, but when you were there for two years, I can't even imagine everything that you saw. It, it was... There was always something going on. I know I've talked to a lot of veterans, and they talk about when they were serving, they had long periods of boredom where they didn't know what didn't know what to do or where to go. We were always doing something. There was always something going on. I'd get, I'd be technically I had a room at a hotel in Saigon, and I maybe used the bed two nights a week. But I would get, uh, they'd capture some documents or a prisoner or something, and they'd send the MPs out to get me. And, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning, there's an MP there saying, uh, come on, you're supposed to be down at the helipad. 
and I'd jump on a helicopter, and most of the time I didn't have a clue where I was going. <laughs> and I'd go out someplace to a fire base, and there'd be documents or something we were supposed, or a prisoner they wanted me to talk to. Or, yep. And some of them were the, the out-and-out funniest prisoner. Um, we got... There was a prisoner captured, and he had a computer circuit board in his pocket. And they're going, uh-oh, we got to find out what this is. And nobody could tell me what it is. So I got on the... Uh, we had used teletype at the time. Took um, the the, co- the serial numbers off of it and ran them through the teletype to uh, uh, Arlington Hall Station in Washington and asked him if they could tell me what it was. It took about four hours, and the teletype absolutely lit up. They, they're coming back at me going, who is this guy, where is he, this is what we want to know, just all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. It turned out the circuit board was the, uh, the, the processing center of a motion sensor. We used to plant motion sensors that looked like they were a bush. With, and when the North Vietnamese would, would move down the Ho Chi Minh Trail past them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they wanted to know why this guy had this motion, this, the most important part of the motion sensor. So I spent two days looking up all words that I didn't know in Vietnamese, like transistor and diode and circuit board. And, and so I go out to find this guy. Turns out he's in a hospital. <laughs> He was he was shot up pretty bad. He's in a hospital, and I get there, and all the pri- it's a prison hospital. So I was the only entertainment. So all of the all of the prisoners are sitting around watching me talk to this guy, and I realize I get to this kid's, and I say, "Kid, he was twelve or thirteen years old," and I'm trying to figure out something's wrong here. So I start asking him questions about the circuit board Mm -hmm. and I'm getting complete blank from him. He doesn't understand a word I'm saying, doesn't know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think, what? So finally, I pull the circuit board out of my pocket and I show it to him and he goes, oh, my pretty souvenir. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) It was was like, oh, yeah. So then, I, you know, I said, "Okay, where'd you get it? <laughs> Why'd you?" He said, "What was it? It was in a bunker someplace that I don't remember where the bunker is, but he I picked it up." It he didn't know what it, it <laughs> oh, was. No. Pretty. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing a fraction of the stories I imagine you have, and thank you for your service. You yeah. It was great to meet you. It was welcome. It was good and meeting I, you too. And I hope you're enjoying the trip. I am. It's uh, honestly up until up until the plane took off, oh. I had reservations about whether or not I should be doing this. So you think everyone should go? Yes. It's it's good for for people to come. Despite it being a little chilly. (laughs) Hey, the forecast that was in the brochure said it was going to be in the 70s. They lied to me. I know. We had 60s, but it doesn't feel like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Stephen. You are welcome.